Is immigration important to a free society? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Alex Narasta. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today I'm talking with another Alex. Our guest is Alex Narasta. Alex is the Director of Immigration Studies at the Cato Institute Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity. He has published a number of peer-reviewed studies on immigration and has appeared on numerous radio and television programs across the United States. You can find his studies about immigration in the United States at the Cato Institute website. A few years ago, ABC News listed Alex as one of the top 20 immigration experts to follow on Twitter in America, and I certainly agree with that myself. So, from one Alex to another, Alex, welcome to The Curious Task. Thanks, Alex. It's a pleasure to be here. So, in each episode, we start with a question and go wherever the discussion takes us. So, let's kick it right off. Is immigration important to a free society? Yeah, it absolutely is important. And it's important, I think, for at least two reasons. The first is that the people who live in a free society, uh, like the United States or Canada, their ability to basically interact with, deal with, buy from, sell to, marry, etc. People is a very important part of their freedom. And it does not stop at the borders of their nation. It does not stop uh, or is not uh, end with people who were also lucky enough to be born uh, in these countries, but it extends to people around the world. So freedom to use your property as you wish, to invite people onto your property, uh, to interact, freedom of contract with other folks. Definitely, it's an important part of a free society uh, to allow people sort of the maximum freedom in that regard. It's also important, I think, for um, the people who are living outside of your country who could become part of it at some point in the future to also be able to freely deal with citizens. So there's sort of like that that other perspective. I mean, the, a lot of countries in the world that today celebrate themselves as being free are, are founded on a lot of the notion of like universal ideals. Uh, the idea that like anybody can become Canadian or American and that these freedoms preceded the creation of these states and that these states exist to protect those individual freedoms are very important. And so unless there's a really good reason, I think, to stop an individual person or um, a, a person who's a member of a, of a certain group um, from, from coming here, I think the presumption has to be in favor of uh, letting them come, again, unless there's a really good reason to stop them, and that reason is particular to that individual. So so the idea is like by default, people should be allowed. In. And as you said, if there's a particular reason not to let someone in, then then we would go with that. In your view, like just to give the listeners an example, what would be a good reason not to let someone in? Like one individual, let's talk. Yeah. So if somebody, um, you know, there's a if he's been convicted of a serious crime like murder um, or if that person is suspected of having committed a serious crime or maybe spent a lot of time in a weird uh, you know, training facility in the mountains of Afghanistan, <laughs> or you know, is a national security threat for some way, or maybe has like a serious communicable disease, right? Um, etc. Like for those reasons, I would say that those are three pretty good reasons, and I'm giving a lot of generosity, I think, or uh, you know, I'm I'm even willing to err on the side of being like even extra super safe. Uh, and being like, okay, let's say you're suspected of having committed something, but you haven't been tried, like of, of a serious crime, then okay, fine, like let's do that. But so I guess we could say, like, you know, it doesn't apply to like 99% of people. Uh, I'm sorry, these exclusions don't apply to 99% of people. So basically, those are the good reasons. There might be some other ones, but I haven't come across them. Uh, in my years of doing research on this. So generally speaking, if someone is some sort of danger to someone's safety, like let's say you said they're convicted murderer, serial killer or yeah. something on the record, or on the other hand, like some sort of risk to public health, these would generally be areas where we could reject an individual in your view from coming to a country. Yeah, if they're uh, real, if we suspect that there's a really good chance they're going to violate the life, liberty or private property of other people who are living in the society uh, by coming here uh, intentionally through their actions or in some cases unintentionally let's say by being sick and you know unintentionally spreading a serious illness um then i think that that's sort of the criteria we should go with it sort of uh builds off of the richard epstein um sort of the epstein argument that um you know mutually beneficial voluntary exchanges 
are deemed to be positive sum and that they are positive for the people involved. They create more value. Uh, we have to sort of assume that that's true. Otherwise, most of economics uh, doesn't make sense. And sort of the legal foundations of our societies don't make sense either in the common law. So unless there's a really good reason, like somebody's going to use fraud, force, we have a really good reason to suspect they would. Um, then I think we have we should let them in. We have, we I think our our legal systems, our ethics and traditions sort of implore us to try to let them in. So the question for authorities shouldn't be like, do we let this in? Do we not let this person in? Once again, it's sort of like the default is let them in unless there's a strong case not to. Yeah, and it's the same thing that I would say should be for any other law. Um, you know, we we assume that every action is legal except for that which the government specifically identifies as being illegal right. and not allowed. And it's the exact opposite in the American immigration system. It's assumed that all immigration is illegal except for the handful of individuals who fit in the specific visa categories that the government says, all right, you can specifically come. So like, it's basically like a Soviet style, like the way immigration run in the U.S. is like a Soviet style system of extreme central planning uh, run by bureaucrats over generations where they assume like this person is good or we're going to allow this type of person in, but nobody else, nothing else is allowed. So it's in like direct contrast to sort of the uh, Anglo-Saxon system of jurisprudence that we, uh, you know, that both Canada, United States and lots of other countries uh, inherited from Great Britain. And yeah, and some people think the alternative to strict immigration controls ultimately, uh, it's, it's going to be crazy. There's going to be people going everywhere. But ultimately, what we're talking about at this point is is letting the market decide what who comes in and out. Basically, if there's a market for immigration, that's ultimately what will control the levels of immigration. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Um, you know, there's other reasons. People are being forced, uh, I mean, if they're forced out of their country due to um, violence, civil war, catastrophe of some kind, there's absolutely things like that. But where they decide to go is oftentimes based on either proximity and or economics. So there's a lot of people in Central America now who are trying to come up to the United States. Um, a lot of them are at least claiming they're coming up due to violence in their home countries. Uh, they could have gone to Panama, uh, <laughs> but you know why go to Panama when you can go to the United States where you have a higher income, better chance of working, better chance of fitting in, um, et cetera, uh, than in Panama. But I think if we went back to this type of system that, we that the United States had, that Canada had, that basically the whole world had in the uh, 19th century – in early 20th century of basically being able to go where you wanted to, uh, if you could afford the ticket, then uh, I think the market conditions would determine where the vast majority of these folks uh, end up going. And that would mean de facto going to countries that are currently uh, very highly developed, where wages are high, where people are productive. Um, and generally, they'd be leaving places where they are relatively very poor, wages are low, and they're unproductive. Before we get into some like objections to this position, because I think it'll be very fruitful for us to go through that together for everyone listening, I, I just wanted to ask your opinion on another thing, which was where do you feel that anti-immigration sentiment comes from ultimately when people think of these questions? Like To me, it seems that ultimately you have, you have two sides, sort of people that just don't like outsiders. That's one side. And then on the other hand, you have people that they sort of bank their anti-immigration sentiment on, on bad effects, like economic effects. Is that a fair sort of grouping of the, the two camps that you have in the counter-immigration belief? Or, or would you say that you, you'd like to add a few more? Like, obviously, you definitely dealt with this a lot more than I have. So I'm just wondering, in your experience, where you think a lot of the sentiment comes from. So I think the base sentiment is that some fo some people just don't like foreigners. Um, <laughs> you know, xenophobia, I guess. Uh, and I want to distinguish that's not uh, racism necessarily. I think, you know, foreign people from foreign countries, uh, because of history... Uh, generally look a little different from people in your home country. I mean, there are exceptions, right? Like I, I just by looking, I can take a look at like, you know, the tip, the average Canadian in American streets. I wouldn't be able to point that person out and like vice versa. Right. Uh, there are exceptions to this, but, uh, generally, um, uh, people in different countries tend to look a little different from each other due to historical accidents, uh, ethnicities, races, etc., being separated for long periods of time. So I think like racial ethnic differences are correlated with differences in people's like where they're from. But I don't think that's necessarily like the core 
the core feature that makes people anti or opposed to immigration. I think it's just that folks don't like foreigners that much, no matter what they look like. Um, maybe they dislike them a little less if they sound the same or look the same, but I think you'd still have uh, a good amount of opposition, even if people around the world uh, looked the same and sounded the same. Uh, people would still not like foreigners that much. As the sub sort of objections go, I mean, I sort of bro broadly looped them into sort of three different categories. Uh, and, and in addition to that, one is sort of a culture. So they think foreigners or, or immigrants just have a bad culture or a funny culture or an icky culture, and they don't like that. The other is sort of uh, economics. This is they're taking my job, they're making me pay higher taxes, my rent's going to go up, or my property values are going to go down, uh, they're going to use welfare, some kind of objection like that. And then the last one I think is um, you know politics. Um, immigrants are going to vote in a bad way, their descendants are going to vote in a bad way, and this is going to favor the political party that I don't like. Um, and on the flip side, right, there are folks who could use any one of these to be in favor of immigration. They, so they could say, like, I like certain cultural characteristics that people from this foreign country have, and I want them to be in the United States or, or Canada, for instance. So I'm going to support more immigration. Or they think, um, you know, I think, uh, or, or, they, or they might believe that they're themselves or other particular groups that they like in the United States will benefit economically from immigration. Or they might think that, uh, hey, immigrants are supporting my political party, so let them all in. So, you know, I think it, it cuts both ways. And as you said, if there's still a way that you can be prejudiced against certain types of people, even if you think they carry positive effects. Like you said, like sometimes you hear people talk about, oh, like we like these kind of immigrants because they do like X, Y, and Z things. We don't like those kinds over there. So it's kind of interesting that you said as well, you can sort of be um, pro-immigration, but also still have like a, a bit of an air of prejudice to it as well. Yeah, absolutely. And and, and part of that, I think is, um, it, but, but I, I go back and forth on this, right? Like there's a lot of evidence by this um, political scientist named uh, Jens uh, Heinmuller. And he basically argues that cultural differences, cultural anxiety, people not liking foreign cultures can explain basically all of the opposition that people have to, uh, to immigration hmm. um, over time. There's another school of thought that I've been reading about more recently that I, I think there's a lot to it in the American context, but maybe not so much in other countries' context. And this is the idea of uh, perceptions of chaos. So if immigration is perceived as causing chaos, then people are against the thing that they think is causing chaos. So I think that one of the best examples of this might be people looking at the U.S. border with Mexico. Uh, they see people sort of crossing, you know, hopping a fence or crossing a line, being apprehended. And they think, my God, this is all out of control. This is all chaotic. Um, even if those are illegal immigrants, I'm again, I'm going to be against all immigration because it's just associated right. with this thing that it, that is chaotic. So this desire, I think, for order that a lot of people have um, bleeds into this. Whereas, you know, my response to that is, well, if you don't want the disorder, then you should just legalize it all uh, because then it'll be very orderly. Like obviously, <laughs> like most of the disorderly things in our lives are those that are the most heavily controlled and regulated by the government. And it's because their rules are not realistic. They haven't taken account of the way things, the way people actually behave. They sort of are these central planners that think that immigration or whatever needs to work in this particular way. So they make rules that are not suited to reality. The result of this is disorder, black markets, et cetera, because rules don't change 100% of the time how people behave. And that's what we think uh, we're seeing in immigration. Um, right now, at least uh, in the United States, and why I think in countries like Canada and Australia, you have immigration systems that are more open than that than, the, than that in the United States, is that they don't have a land border with a developing country. So there's like many fewer opportunities to see these pictures of chaos uh, than there are in the United States. So I think if the United States didn't have a border with a country like Mexico, let's say there was like an ocean between us, or we had like, I don't know, Germany on our southern border or something, um, there'd be a lot less legal illegal immigration. And I think as a result, we'd have a much more open legal system. Yeah, I, th I think it's interesting that you did note that a lot of this has to do with people, they, they tend to like order and not disorder. And we see this even if we put immigration for, aside for a sec, I'm, I'm going to make up a silly example. But let's say you have like this municipality where hot dog stands aren't 
aren't allowed to open up downtown and someone comes out of the woodwork and says, you know, anyone should be able to open up a hot dog stand. Most people's reactions, oh, hold on, hold on. Let's not get crazy here. We don't want hot dog <laughs> stands everywhere. So, so even like removing it completely from immigration, I find very interesting that you talked about people's like sense of order and how that gets disrupted by lots of people moving around and, and moving into a country. Absolutely. And like in the hot dog example, right? Let's say somebody opened up some black market hot dog stands or was selling black markets, out, you know, hot dogs out of the alleyway. Oh, uh, you know, somebody gets shot because of a dispute over which type of buns are the best. <laughs> yeah. Or, you know, oh, ketchup or mustard and somebody gets blown away. Like, um, that a lot of people who maybe were on the fence about this or didn't care about hot dog stands being legalized would all of a sudden be like, oh, this hot dog stuff is pretty chaotic. Right. We need to get this stuff under control. And when people think about things being under control, they almost never think of liberalization or legalization. Right. They almost always think about throwing the police at the problem. Right. Go, go. Like, let's not think about how we could have a situation where people can sell their hot dogs peacefully to other people voluntarily. Let's basically make it okay. We got to send the cops after the hot dog vendors. They're, they're clearly bringing violence to our downtown square. This is a problem. Yeah, and people uh, say the same thing with immigration, right? right. Like I, I, I talk to a lot of conservatives in the United States who I, I maybe agree on a whole bunch of different economic issues with, at least in theory, uh, before this president. Uh, agree with a whole lot of economic issues with, right? And uh, I'd say like, listen, if you want to get control over it, legalize. And they're like, no, 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 we need control first. Control first, then we can talk about legalization. And I think that's part of the reason why it's been so hard to, you know, legalize drugs, um, you know, in our country is over the last uh, over the last century. And I don't think it's a coincidence that we're in a time of fairly low crime. And that's potentially why uh, we're seeing finally some progress and uh, drug legalization. I, I know a lot, a lot of your work focuses around the United States, but when you think, I won't, I won't say globally, but let's think of, quote, the West for a second, too. Do you find that you, you, when you've talked to other experts or other people that maybe have different views than you have, do you find that there is an anti-immigrant sentiment growing in other nations as well? Like Canada, for instance, a lot of people do uh, have this sort of perception that, you know, it's a very welcoming nation. I think as compared to other nations, it certainly is, but there are areas of Canada and cer certain sectors, uh, certain provinces, let's say, whatever the case may be, like where certain pockets of people have like anti-immigration uh, sentiment growing, and in, in my view, at least. So I'm wondering if, if you feel like this isn't just a problem with the United States when it comes to anti-immigrant sentiment on, on the growth. Is this becoming sort of like a Western problem as well? So uh, yeah, just a quick note about how open Canada is to immigration. Um, by comparison to the United States, I think the proper comparison is how many immigrants are allowed into a country uh, relative to that country's population. So in the United States, it's about we add about three tenths of one percent to the population each year through immigration. In Canada, it's about eight tenths of one percent. So it's more than twice um, as open relative to the United States in terms of annual flows. So uh, that translates into an immigrant stock in um, Canada that's about fifty percent greater than the United States, about twenty-one percent or about twenty percent or so compared to about thirteen and a half percent in the United States. So it's it's quite a different thing. I don't know if immigrant sentiment is actually greater in the U.S. or anywhere else than it was before. Gallup has been doing these surveys where they ask should the should the U.S. Uh, have more immigration, less immigration, the same. And we're basically at the historic high point for allowing in, like, public opinion wants more immigration. Hmm. Um, and we're near the historic, and we're about at the historical low point for having less uh, immigration. So, like, in the mid-1990s, 65% or so of Americans wanted less immigration, and now it's about 32%. Um, meanwhile, the percentage of the population that, that wants more immigration has gone up by, like, seven, from 7% from to about 30%. Um, that's obviously not reflected in politics currently, where the president of the United States is uh, rapidly anti-immigrant, both anti-legal and illegal immigrant. And I think part of the issue is that the folks who are anti-immigration care about the issue a lot more than folks who are pro-immigration. So like people who are nativists, uh, who, who want less immigration, uh, it's like their number one issue. Well, those of us generally who want, you know, not myself, of course, but uh, other people who want more legal immigration, it's like, you know, the third or fourth biggest issue. So they don't really change your vote based on it. Mm. Um, what I think has happened is, and this happens in lots of times, I think, when we have sort of a, um, a sea change in public opinion happen, what, what we've seen is sort of the side that's losing has sort of like a temper tantrum and a freak out. 
Hmm. And they sort of go all the way. They throw everything they have into it. They get really nuts in terms of their rhetoric, probably because there are many fewer of them who are left behind and they're all the diehards. And they basically are pushing for this stuff in, in a very extreme way because this is like their last shot. Right. And that's what I think um, You know, we're probably seeing right now, at least in the United States, is anti-immigrant sentiment is falling in the population. And what Donald Trump is is sort of an expression of the last opportunity of nativists to try to turn it around, to try to change it, sort of their freak out. And I think we saw a similar thing with like the civil rights movement in the United States uh, in the 50s and 60s with crazy politicians who came out saying insane things. I guess, you know, George Wallace um, and, and these other politicians running on sort of uh, anti uh, on pro-segregation uh, uh, tickets, sort of like the last gasp of this. Uh, that's my sense of what it is in the United States. Um, I mean, my sense in Canada is there might be some people who are more willing now to say anti-immigrant things in the past. Uh, I'm not sure how that will translate the policy in the future. I think you're probably a better judge of that than I am. Western Europe is a different beast. Um, you know, unlike Canada and the United States, uh, most Western European countries don't have a strong immigrant tradition. They don't have this sense of like, hey, we're a nation of immigrants. People have come here from anywhere. Um, anybody can be Canadian or anybody can be American. You don't really have that in Europe, with the right. exception of maybe France. You have that, um, that sort of idea. But even there, um, they're still very skeptical of the benefits of immigration. So we'll see how that goes. They have like a blood borders culture definition of what it means or a you know, blood and soil definition of what it means to be like a member of a European country. Right. We don't have that in the U.S. You know, like my last name is weird as hell. Um, you know, what does it even mean? Where is that like funky name from? But I've like never really gotten except for a handful of anonymous creepy people on Twitter saying (laughs) that I'm not a real American. Like that's just not what comes up. I think it's more often that Americans would be insulted if I ever said that I don't think of myself as American. They would be like insulted and insist the opposite is true. And I, I think in Canada, it's pretty much the same way. Like the ethos is, no, we're all like American, we're all Canadian, like no matter where you're from. And, and it's sort of growing even more so in that direction. Like even where the, to the point in the US where a lot of folks on the political left are saying, no, illegal immigrants are just as American as anybody else, which is like such an odd thing to think about. But I think that's where the the, the ethics is growing. Like our, our sort of perception of who is part of our tribe is continually getting wider and wider. These circles of empathy are growing. And um, I think we're, we're going in that direction. And what we're seeing now is just a temper tantrum of people trying to slow down uh, this progress. Yeah, and conversely, like you were saying before, you touched on it very quickly, that the reason why the people throwing the temper tantrum, as you put it, there's a lot of noise about them in the media and all that is you said this is often their primary issue. This is what they're throwing the temper tantrum about. Whereas, as you said, on the other hand, you have people that, sure, let's say they're relatively pro-immigration. It's often not their top issue. It's usually part of a basket of issues that they might be relatively liberal on, let's say. So that's a, that's a really good point. I never thought of it that way. You don't see a lot of people, like there are exceptions, of course, uh, but you don't see a lot of people going to the polls and be like, I'm a, you know, a one-issue voter uh, and I'm pro-immigration and that that's that's pretty serious for me. Like it's usually part of a set of things. Maybe it's like fourth or fifth down the list. So that that's a very interesting difference as well. Yeah, you almost never hear about somebody's drunk uncle at Thanksgiving ranting about how much they love immigration, <laughs> but uh, frequently hear the opposite. Right, exactly. Like you know, someone being like really pro-immigration is not the issue that ruins Thanksgiving or makes Thanksgiving in some cases. Yeah, <laughs> so it's usually about some other stuff. That, um. I think we're going to take a quick break here because I think in the latter half of the of the episode, we're definitely going to, I want to throw some objections your way, some common objections to this. So uh, you're, you're here on The Curious Task. I'm talking with Alex Narasta and we'll be right back. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send us questions and feedback to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. A special thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Andy Crooks, Bryce Tingle, and Christopher McDonald. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at CuriousTaskILS, and rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task.
Welcome back, everyone. I'm here with Alex Narasta. Alex, before the break, we established the premise of why you think immigration is important to a free society. And we talked generally about why certain people maybe have anti-immigration sentiments and, and where you think that that is at with most people, specifically in Canada and the United States. I'd like to throw a few common objections your way so we can get a little more specific here if you're ready for that. Let's do it. Okay, so there, there, there is a very common one. People say, well, immigrants will have an effect on the wages of people that are already here. If we see a large influx of people coming into the country, there's going to be downward pressure on wages and, you know, everyone's going to get paid lower. And, and, and that's that's not desirable. That, that's a common objection. It is a common objection. And people usually try to appeal to the sort of uh, econ 101, the sort of supply and demand model. Right. And what they say as well is a big increase in the supply of workers. It's got to lower the price, right? Just like it does for everything else. And I always like to say, yes, immigration increases the supply of workers, but it also increases demand. Immigrants are people. They buy things. So let's not focus on partial equilibrium. Let's look at general equilibrium. Let's look at what happens when the model reaches equilibrium again. And what this is, is basically large increase in supply of people definitely puts downward pressure on wages initially. But then what happens is because these people buy things, because they live here, uh, because they specialize in different occupations, we see a corresponding increase in wages. And the net effect is because people are people are good for the economy, sort of a weird way to put it, right? But people are good for the economy. Division of labor is good. Uh, consumers, workers, and entrepreneurs add to value. Uh, what we see is that uh, generally wages go up for the majority of native-born people in a country when we have more immigration. Part of the reason why this is, is immigrants tend to be different from uh, natives in a lot of important ways, such as education, language abilities, where they work and live in these countries. So what we see is actually immigrants who are coming now tend to compete more with immigrants who have come in the recent past than they do with native-born people in these countries just because they have more similar skills. So in the United States, for instance, like a, a high school dropout immigrant from Mexico who comes from Los Angeles, who goes to Los Angeles, is going to compete more with a Mexican high school dropout immigrant who came five years ago to Los Angeles than he is with a native-born American who has some college or a high school degree and doesn't speak Spanish but speaks English uh, only. Um, there's just not that much competition between people with such radically different skills. And as a result, almost all the competition we see is between uh, immigrants in the labor market with other immigrants not between immigrants and natives. I guess the whole they're taking our job sort of thing is is ultimately from if anyone does have a grievance about this, it's the small percentage of people who said may have like high school education or less, and there might be some direct competition in that area, but mostly they're not directly competing with the people who currently have jobs is what you're saying. Yeah, basically the most negative finding in the peer-reviewed literature on this topic in the United States is by uh, George Borjas. And what he finds is like, from 1990 to 2010, the roughly you know 30 million or so immigrants who came to the U.S. Uh, lowered the wages of native-born American high school dropouts by about not, uh, about 1.7 uh, percent, and native-born American high school dropouts account for about nine percent of the U.S. population, while the rest of Americans see wage increases in the area of about one percent due entirely to immigration. Yeah, and I think that, as you touched on before, like that demand side of the equation certainly can't be ignored. I mean, people aren't just coming here, as you were describing briefly there, and and earning a wage, let's say, however it may be, and, and sitting on that money. They're ultimately going to go spend money in a community, buy, buy groceries, and do all the other things that everybody else are doing. So I think the fact that you brought up the demand side of the whole discussion as well, which, which is often forgotten, is very important. Thanks. Yeah, it's, uh, it, it, it's the idea that we don't have a static market. We don't have a static labor market. There's not a fixed supply of jobs. So an immigrant coming in, taking some job um, that's being offered that, um, you know, American most often is, um, you know, offering to that person, that doesn't mean that there's one less job for a native-born American. Uh, it often means that we have more jobs and more employment opportunities created by created in other, other areas. Right. I mean, it's as simple as the idea of if there's more cars that people are driving around in a community, let's say the mechanic's going to get a little busier. It's like ultimately that simple in some cases. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's hard to pinpoint exactly which one of those jobs is created, right? But if the mechanics are 10% busier, the barbers are 10% busier, uh, people who work in grocery stores are 10% busier, 
busy or et cetera due to immigrants being in an area, um, then you're going to see uh, employment effects whereby a lot of folks, especially in non-tradable sectors of the economy, um, are, uh, where lower skilled Americans tend to work more often, um, you're going to see uh, just a more uh, a larger increase or an increase in the rate of job creation for those folks. Another objection to, to, to immigration is, is ultimately their effect on the, quote, system. So whether that's the welfare system or some sort of public funds, people are saying, fine, I have no problem with immigrants, but ultimately they're going to come here and burden what, what we already have. And often people are referring to some form of the welfare state in that case. Yeah, absolutely. And this depends based on the country, right? This depends based on the welfare states that exist in these countries. And I want to say, if you want to have an impact on the welfare state, the best way to do that is to affect, uh, you know, government taxes and spending, <laughs> not to tinker with the demographics of a country by futzing around uh, with uh, the uh, the immigration system. Uh, but in the United States, at least, what we find is that uh, immigrants are less likely to use welfare than native-born Americans, and when they do, they use a lower dollar value. Uh, they tend to make larger contributions, especially to Medicare and Social Security. Uh, Medicare and Social Security in the United States are the old-age entitlement programs. So because immigrants tend to be a little bit younger, Younger, they tend to work a little bit more, and they tend uh, are less likely to retire in the United States. They make fairly large, substantial net contributions to Medicare and Social Security. So Medicare, for instance, um, uh, health insurance, subsidized health insurance for the elderly in the United States, immigrants from 2002 to 2009 paid in about $14 billion a year more into the system than they took out, while native-born Americans took out about $31 billion a year more than they put in. So immigrants aren't saving the system from bankruptcy, uh, but they are making it less fiscally, catastrophically flawed. Uh, let me put it that way, at least um, in the in the longer run. Um, so uh, immigrants tend to also, uh, because they are more likely to work, uh, tend to uh, pay a good amount of taxes, but also they're less likely to just be eligible for a lot of government programs. So they're much less likely to consume those. And then one of the big things that people don't realize is, you know, a 19-year-old immigrant who comes to the United States is not going to have access to public schooling for people from the ages, you know, from the ages of like 5 to 18. They're not eligible for that because those are age specific. So somebody who comes at the age of 18, um, immediately starts working, not getting welfare benefits, they're paying taxes into the government system. Meanwhile, somebody like like myself, who grew up in the United States, right? The age of 19, um, I've gone through 12 years of government-funded education uh, that's cost between ten dollars and $30,000 per year. I'm immediately starting with an enormous deficit that immigrants are just not starting with. So they're starting off a little bit better. I think I read in, in your article that it was called the, the 14 um, Most Common Arguments Against Immigration and Why They're Wrong. I read that you said that if people's problem is ultimately the welfare state, then they should, quote, build a higher wall around the welfare state, close quote, and, and, and not the country ultimately. Yeah, that's right. Um, um, oftentimes, I think people use these objections because they dislike immigration uh, and they don't have a really good reason for it, except they don't like foreigners. So they sort of like pluck arguments like this out of the woolwork and they're like, oh, uh, welfare. Yeah, we, uh, that must be a good reason to oppose immigration. And it's like hurl it at you. Meanwhile, if they were really opposed to this. There is an easy solution, that is to restrict welfare benefits to immigrants. That already is on the books in the United States. There's severe restrictions on access to means-tested welfare benefits in the United States and other countries, by the way. Let's just build those up a little bit higher, if that's your real objection. Um, of course, in most cases, it's not. In some cases, it is. I mean, I think from libertarians especially, we hear this argument and, and they mean it. Uh, but most of the time when I hear it, for instance, when I go on Tucker Carlson's show and debate him on this topic, I think it's just something he's pulling out of the ether and, and an argument he's trying to use because he thinks it's rhetorically effective. But he'd find something else, even if there wasn't a welfare state. Right. I think I saw that clip. And I, I think what he was saying there is like, look, we have the welfare state. So so given that, and he shoves that aside, like that's why we can't have people here, as opposed to actually discussing the welfare state and how it could be changed in such a way that, that might not make it a problem if indeed there even was one. Yeah. And these are ways, these reforms are popular too. I mean, in 1996, the United States uh, substantially reformed its welfare system. Uh, one of the biggest reforms in that system was that it did significantly restrict 
the ability for non-citizens to get these benefits. And that's stuck around and that's popular. So if you're looking for something popular to do on immigration and you're worried about immigrants uh, consuming welfare benefits, then restricting welfare is a pretty easy thing to do politically. Let's switch to the, the cultural assimilation objection. So you'll you'll often hear people say, okay, fine, let's say I'm, I'm a proponent of immigration, yes, in general, but but here's the problem. A bunch of people here, let's say they come in a giant block of people, they, they ultimately have a different culture, they have different values, uh, and, and often the cultural assimilation, at least in, in my view, breaks down into one of two ways. On the one hand, they think that they're bringing cultural elements with them that aren't that can't reconcile with whatever, quote, Western values are in that case, American or Canadian, or on the other hand, people say that the the culture will just change too quickly. But ultimately, the the point here of this objection is that people say, look, they're not going to assimilate the way they should, or at least certain groups won't. So that's an objection. Yeah, we hear that all the time. And if we take a look at the evidence, at least in the United States and across most OECD countries, there's simply not much evidence to support the the idea that immigration immigrants are assimilating today at a lower rate than in the past. So there's this wonderful book that was put out by the um, National Academy of Sciences in the United States called The Integration of Immigrants into American Society. It's like this 600-page literature survey. And basically, they took a look at all these different indicators from, from language to family size, religion, economics, education, all these different things that you want to look at to measure uh, integration assimilation in the United States. And basically, immigrants are doing about as well as they did 100 years ago in terms of assimilation, in terms of the rates of assimilation, um, and, um, and and some measures doing even better than they did um, over 100 years ago when the U.S. had practically opened borders to people from Europe, uh, which, by the way, people at the time thought were radically different cultures, you know, Catholics, uh, immigrants, Jewish immigrants, other immigrants coming over here from Eastern and Southern Europe were seen as aliens. You know, totally different culture from the culture in the United States at the time. Like, I laugh at it now. It's kind of so silly. But they were seen as, like, radically different. And immigration and assimilation today uh, is going, you know, from people from all over the world is going just as well as it did, you know, 100 years ago when we had immigrants uh, coming to the United States in large numbers uh, from Europe. There's another report done by the OECD takes a look at this, Indicators of Immigrant Integration. Uh, looking at 27 different indicators across the OECD and EU. Um, there are a handful of more sort of economic assimilation problems um, in European countries than there is in the US, Canada, Australia, and New Zealand. But basically, they find like very good uh, rapid economic integration all these ways. And I think one of my favorite reports on this is by Jacob Vigdor. Uh, he's an economist at the University of Washington. And he compares um, immigration today in the United States to that of 100 years ago and basically finds uh, that it's going very well. And one of the ways that it's going well in the United States um, is through uh, this phenomenon called um, ethnic attrition, which occurs primarily through intermarriage. And what this means is um, the descendants of immigrants from, say, Mexico, who are Hispanic ethnicity, Um, there is a very high rate of intermarriage by generation. So first generation of immigrants, the immigrants themselves, you know, 8% of them marry non-Hispanics in the United States. Then it jumps to 32%. And the second generation, it goes up to 57% by the third generation. And what's interesting is the folks, the immigrants and their kids who have the highest educations, for instance, are the most economically upwardly mobile. Um, They are the most likely to marry outside of their ethnic group. And their kids are much less likely to self-identify as a member of that ethnic group. So over time, the people who self-identify as Hispanic in the U.S. are those who are the products of folks who don't intermarry. And those who don't intermarry are much less likely to be successful. So over time, it will look like those who self-identify as Hispanic uh, as less successful, less well-integrated. But the pool of those people who are um, you know, uh, self-identifying as Hispanic is shrinking over time dramatically due to intermarriage. So that you take a look at, say, all of the descendants of Hispanic immigrants, even if they're intermarried with others, we see rapid and full assimilation between the second and third generation. It's only when you focus on the handful of people who don't intermarry uh, and who generally, for lack of a better word, tend to be losers, um, they are more likely to self-identify as Hispanic. But those group of people are shrinking substantially. It'd be like Today, if you ask people in the United States, do you consider yourself Italian or not, you're going to have some people who say, yeah, 
you know, they're going to live in New York and New Jersey and they're going to really like the Sopranos. Um, <laughs> and those people, though, are going to be very difficult, different from the vast majority of the descendants of Italian immigrants who have assimilated well, who have intermarried, don't call themselves Italian anymore, but are nonetheless the descendants of Italian immigrants. You know, assimilation takes multiple generations. Uh, there is no indication, though, that immigrants today are doing worse than those in the past. And just, you know, to add in a personal anecdote, like my, um, my paternal grandparents are both from Iran. Um, my father, so like ethnically, my father was born in America, who is like fully uh, Iranian. He married um, uh, a woman, my mo- my mother, who is uh, you know fully like just a European mutt, like you know from everywhere in Europe. Um, and I've never myself, you know, I'm the product of this marriage, so I guess I'm like half Iranian, half like European. Like I've never identified in a survey as Middle Eastern ever. I've never even thought about it. In fact, yeah. before I came across this ethnic attrition literature, it never even occurred to me that that would be a thing that I would do. And it's interesting that there are tens of millions of other people like me in the United States right now uh, who are the products of these marriages from different you know, ethnic groups, Hispanic, Asian, uh, African, whatever. Um, and that my like, this experience to me is like ordinary. Yeah, and and like I'll throw in a personal anecdote too. For so for me, like it's 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 so like my background is is Italian. So, I'm, but I've never thought of calling myself Italian. I mean, it just in within one generation, this has effectively been flushed out. And that is to say, so my my father was young when he came to Canada, but like he he was born in Italy, so he literally came here on a boat. My my mother was the uh, was the daughter of immigrants to Canada, so they're both Italian. So if you actually really trace the lineage back, I'm you know 100 Italian within a generation. You know, okay, so. I I'm was born here. I'm a, I'm technically Italian by background. My partner is currently someone who's, as you kind of say, like somewhat of like a European mutt in a way. So if if that continues through children, I mean, there we go. There's economic and social forces at work right there. That, that there's your assimilation, whether intended or not. Yeah, assimilation is not something. And I'm glad you brought up the point about intention. It's not something that you know an immigrant or their kids like you know, wake up one morning and they're like, all right, time to assimilate. Right. It, it's Saturday. We're doing our assimilation lessons. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's just something that happens. Like I lived in the United Kingdom for a year to get my graduate degree. And in some ways I assimilated a little bit to British culture while I was living there. Like I didn't intend to, um, but it just happened. And that's the type of thing. Like we don't need a government program to do this. And in the past, at least in the U S when there have been government programs to try to do this through the so-called Americanization movement, uh, what you saw was a lot of resentment. Uh, people didn't like being bossed around or told. And the notion that like some stodgy school teacher in public school is going to be, you know, the, the vehicle through which, uh, kids like really listen and decide to assimilate. This is like laughable. I mean, yeah. like I have to think like, have you ever been in public schools? Like, uh, whoever listens to their teachers about like cultural things or issues or anything, they're you know boring old people from the perspective of like you know a, a teenager. Um, you know I'm one of those boring old people now, but like you know uh, who listens to these folks? I mean it's just like such a worldview. I don't understand it. It's like did you grow up in a in a, in a cave somewhere where you have no interaction with these institutions as they actually are? You know. Uh, People lecturing you is not how you decide to assimilate. You don't even decide. It just happens. Yeah. And as you said, I think, and you could tell me there's certainly data to back this up, but if people are trying to get active and getting people to, quote, assimilate, then there's probably going to be resistance to that, as you briefly touched on. I mean, I don't see why if someone was trying to say, these are the values you just had, this is the way you should think. I think people are going to be like, maybe hold on tighter to whatever they view as, the, as their culture or, quote, proper background rather than naturally assimilate. Yeah. There's this, um, yeah, it's, there's this backlash effect. Uh, economist Vicky Falca did some work. Um, on this in the United States. Like during World War One, uh, there was this rabid sort of anti-German uh, propaganda machine in the United States that was specifically focused on uh, German Americans trying to get them to not speak German, to get German language out of American schools, to, you know, just to get them to basically uh, shed their anything German. Like they named like a uh, sauerkraut liberty cabbage. I mean, just like really <laughs> stupid stuff like this, right? And um, one of the reactions was that uh, a lot of people who were really attached to their German identity sort of hunkered down. They were more likely to give 
their kids' German names rather than sort of more normal American-sounding names. Mm -hmm. Um, And during World War II, places where this occurred, uh, much lower rates of voluntary enlistment in the armed services um, (laughs) to fight against uh, German and these other places. So um, that is sort of the, the, the bad part of this is that places where these campaigns took hold, it did slow assimilation. And there's evidence in places like, uh, it's a little bit different, but in places in China where there are uh, ethnic minorities, the government has been trying to build this sort of like national identity, like everybody assimilate to the Chinese national identity. Um, And there has been no effect in terms of like Chinese, like uh, ethnicities and and minority groups in China uh, being more likely to identify with like the large Chinese state as a result of like decades of intense propaganda in public schools. It just doesn't work. And I love the assimilation part of the discussion, but I do want to make sure we move on and do cover the other objections. So I want to move on to the immigrants as bringing crime with them objection. So there, there's a lot of people that say, um, you know, and this is goes back to, for instance, what Donald Trump implies about Mexicans and sometimes says it directly that look like some of these people are, are fine people, but ultimately they're bringing crime with them. They're bringing drugs. The, this idea that there's a higher frequency of crime uh, on the one end and on the other extreme, some people say, well, there's just rampant with crime in immigrant communities. And that's what immigrants bring with them. Yeah. So uh, this, again, probably differs across countries. So it's sort of an empirical matter. But at least in the United States, uh, what we've seen going back for evidence over a century is that immigrants are less likely to be incarcerated for crimes. Um, immigrant Places where immigrants live are generally less crime prone uh, and that they're less likely to be convicted of crimes in the United States. So, um, for instance, uh, we took a look at this at the Cato Institute. Um, what a lot of people will say in response is they'll say, yeah, sure. Legal immigrants are less likely, but illegal immigrants are probably all a bunch of criminals. So what we did was we took a look at this, and we took a look at incarceration rates. We used a statistical technique that's commonly used to identify illegal immigrants, and we applied it to the incarcerated population in the United States. And what we found is that uh, illegal immigrants are about half as likely to be incarcerated as native-born Americans. Um, in the United States. So even for illegal immigrants, they're less crime prone. Now, there's one state that actually tracks convictions for crimes um, by immigration status, and that's the state of Texas, uh, which is a great state to study for this because they have the second largest illegal immigrant population of any state in the country. And what we found uh, by taking a look at the data um, is that uh, illegal immigrants have a criminal conviction rate about half that of native-born Americans. Um, in the United States, while illegal immigrants have an even lower one, uh, about half again. So what we see is just, you know, the the common finding again and again is that in the United States, uh, immigrants are much less likely to be criminals um, than native-born Americans. And I'll, I'll throw in a caveat here. You know, part of it might be the fact that Americans have exceptionally high crime rates. Uh, especially compared to other developed countries. So maybe if these immigrants went to some other countries, like um, Denmark, for instance, (laughs) they would appear to be more crime-prone. But because they come to the United States, um, they look uh, very, very good. Now, part of that also, I think, is that, you know, immigrants, um, if they commit a crime here and they are, you know, convicted of that, then they generally get deported. So there's like generally larger punishments for them uh, to be able to come here as well. But part of it also, I think, is the type of person who decides to move to a different country uh, and a different culture, make that long-term investment uh, in, in themselves at enormously high uh, upfront cost, tends to be the type of person to not give in to temptation and to commit a crime like this. And a lot of crimes are committed by people who just don't think that much about the long-term. They don't think that much about these issues. So I think immigrants are just you know, self-selected generally to be less crime-prone than people in the countries where they come from, um, and uh, you know, certain rules um, in, in countries like the United States and Canada where they go to um, incentivize more following of the law once they get here. And expanding on the, the general in the general vein of, of crime, I'd like to expand that a bit a bit to uh, terrorism because, like, in the uh, you know our post 9/11 world, like, often people are very worried about. Uh, folks coming from other countries, specifically the rhetoric uh, surrounding this issue will be people coming from Middle Eastern countries, the idea that we can't let people in. Uh, some will go so far as to say, well, these people, 
back to our cultural assimilation discussion, they come from backwards countries that support terrorists. That's that's the one. And on the other hand, you'll say, look, we don't know who's coming in. There's a lot of terrorists that we could let in as well. So uh, that, that's also a common objection, too, is that there's this terrorism issue in certain countries. And if we start letting people in from those countries, America will have more terrorists. Yeah, we t- uh, recently published um, a peer-reviewed academic paper in the Journal of Economic Behavior and Organization, seeing if there's any kind of relationship uh, between immigrant flows, uh, and I'm sorry, between immigrant stocks in different countries and terrorism, deaths by terrorism uh, in those countries during the 1995 to 2015 period. And we found no statistically significant relationship. Uh, even when we take a look at immigrants from Middle Eastern countries or Muslim countries, uh, we don't find a statistically significant relationship. Uh, part of this, I think, is that um, you know, terrorism is very rare. It's very rare for people to be murdered by terrorism. We're talking about very small numbers. Uh, We're talking about very small numbers of attacks, even though they basically fill our public psyche all the time when they happen. Not many people are killed by terrorism, um, especially in developed countries. Now, when we also sort of broaden it to take a look at the United States from 1975 to 2017, I I wrote this report where we took a look or I took a look at um, all of the people convicted of uh, you know planning or trying to carry out a terrorist attack on U.S. soil who are foreign-born, and what we found was that your annual chance of being murdered by one of them is about one in 3.8 million per year during that 43-year time period. So that's a very very small chance of being murdered by somebody um, in a terrorist attack who is foreign-born. Um, now, as a caveat here, just to you know give my due to the other side, the majority of people murdered by terrorists and attacks during that time period in the United States were murdered by people who were born in other countries, and that's because of 9-11. Um, you know, 9-11 is the deadliest terrorist attack in world history by a factor of nine. Um, uh, and they were committed by people who were here on tourist visas or on student visas um, in the United States. And so altogether, foreign-born people account for something like, I believe it's like uh, 86 to 87% of all people killed in terrorist attacks on U.S. soil during that time period. Uh, if you take out 9-11, then uh, basically your chance of being uh, killed by um uh, any kind of terrorist on U.S. soil um, drops substantially. Your chance of being murdered by a, for instance, um, native-born terrorist during this entire time period is about 1 in 28 million per year. So we're talking about very small numbers, very few people killed by terrorist attacks. Immigrants at least, or foreign-born people, at least in the United States, are a little bit more likely uh, to murder people in, uh, in, in terrorist attacks on U.S. soil. But overall, the threat is tiny. It's very small. It's not a good reason, I think, to close down the borders uh, to people who are not actually themselves terrorists or suspected of being terrorists. Uh, It's not a good reason to bar immigration from Muslim-majority countries in the Middle East. It's a pretty small threat, and it's something that we can deal with with normal law enforcement uh, rather than sort of a blanket across the board immigration restrictions. Let's let's shift gears to another one of the objections that are often set against immigration. And you touched on this in the the first half of our episode, but we didn't really drill into it. People that are ultimately worried that immigrants can be used as a political weapon, quite frankly. A lot of people will say, for instance, in the United States specifically, look, like, uh, of course, the, the Democrats want thousands and millions of people to come in here because they're going to vote Democrat. They're never going to vote conservative Republican. So some people chalk this up to an ultimately a political scheme by the other tribe. Uh, Other people just say that, you know, it kind of ties back to the cultural issue. But ultimately, the objection is, look, these people are going to come here and vote a certain way. Uh, They won't have the sentiments that we share. uh, And then that's a problem. That's the objection. Yeah. And I think the um, if I could change the objection just a touch to make it more uh, reasonable, um, they think that you know the uh, uh, immigrants will overwhelm and change like the institutions of the country, right? So I think the reason why developed countries are developed is because of uh, our institutions, of prior property, free markets, you know, a little bit more of that than other places. And immigrants tend to come from countries that just don't have those institutions, or they're not as good. So maybe by coming here, by voting, um, even if they vote for say my political party, maybe. Um, the reason why their home countries have these bad institutions is that 
these people have bad opinions. And by coming here, they bring their opinions with them and they'll sort of like change our institutions, right? Sort of like, uh, and that has like serious political and economic consequences. What we found is I've, um, I'm co-authoring a book on this very topic right now with Ben Powell from Texas Tech University uh, for Cambridge University Press. And we're basically taking a look at this, like marshalling the amount of academic research that we've published over the years on this, and we just don't find any evidence of this being true. So stocks of immigrants in the past across countries around the world um, are correlated with improvements in economic freedom um, in countries in the future. So basically, more immigrants in the past means more improvements in economic freedom going forward uh, in the future across these countries. We also took a look at quasi-natural experiments. So we took a look at massive exogenous shocks of immigrants into a country. These are surges of immigration not caused by the country where the immigrants go to, uh, but caused by external factors. So in um, the United States, for instance, uh, I'm sorry, so, so the two, character, two countries you look at are Israel and Jordan, huge surges of immigration from the Soviet Union and then from Kuwait, on the other hand, um, in, the, in a very brief period of time. And what we found is that they basically transformed the institutions of these countries in a positive direction, uh, whereby these countries substantially liberalized their economies uh, as a result of immigrants, even though these immigrants came from countries that were less free um, than the places where they eventually settled. So, for instance, Jewish immigrants from the Soviet Union um, influenced Israeli politics to be more free, uh, more economically free. And uh, Kuwaiti Palestinians, who came from a much more controlled economy going to Jordan, uh, basically uh, resulted in Jordan liberalizing its economy. And what we look at in the United States, sort of like drilling down even further, we take a look at the political opinions, like the opinions that people have, immigrants have on policy compared to native-born Americans, and they're basically all within the margin of error. There's basically no statistically significant difference between the opinions of immigrants and the opinions of native-born Americans on basically every political and policy topic with the exception of one and that major one is immigration. Uh, immigrants really want more immigration uh, than native-born Americans do. So basically, whether we took a look at this like big macro impact or we take a look at the impact on uh, specific policies or their opinions, we basically don't see any distinction um, between immigrants and native-born Americans. And where we have measurements, it appears to be that immigrants tend to improve the institutions of places where they go. I guess it's important that people detach sort of the individuals that want to move to a place like Canada or the United States from the country that they're coming from. And ultimately, what people are judging in that uh, discussion is, is the state of the country they're coming from, right? And I'm, by the state, I mean, like, not the state of the condition, but, but the government, right? So if you see someone coming from you know, an oppressive country with like a command economy or something leaning towards that, that doesn't mean the people that want to come to America or Canada are coming with those values. I mean, maybe it, it is important, as you're saying, ultimately, to, to stop and think for a second that, wait, these people are probably are more than likely coming to a place like Canada, the United States, because they like the idea of private property and freedom to some degree. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think it also points to a different uh, point that you brought up, uh, which is that these institutions are ontologically collective. You you know, they're not individual. If I go to Cuba, I don't bring free markets with me in any sense of the word. <laughs> uh, in the same sense that if a Cuban comes to the United States, he doesn't bring central planning with him in any sense of the word. Um, and so these, uh, these are collective institutions. It's very hard to change them. It's very hard to overturn them, um, which is part of the reason why you know poor countries remain poor for so long. Um, but uh, that also means that immigrants like fit in pretty quickly into this system. They adapt very rapidly, and they tend to support the system that they're in. Most people do. They think it's fine. So um, they're not going to be bringing these things with them because they really can't. There's another objection I want you to address, which and, and this is sort of one that you might hear from people that aren't necessarily xenophobic or and aren't into anti-immigration in, in some of the sense that we've already been talking about. But, but these are people who would say, 
Uh, and typically, these would be people, I, I should stop and say that, that it would have concern for developing nations, for example, where they say, look, like, let's say we let uh, a bunch of people come to Canada, the United States. We just let let a bunch of people that want to move, move in here. That, that's great for them, but you're ultimately harming the countries that they're coming from. Why would we want to encourage the best people, the smartest people move, moving away from a developing nation into Canada, the United States? Won't there be some sort of like, quote, brain drain on like developing nations if we let too many people into developed nations? Yeah, we hear this objection a lot lot um there's a few reasons to doubt that that's the way it happens empirically so for instance uh immigrants come here they make a lot of money oftentimes they send that money back so there's hundreds of billions of dollars sent every year in remittances back to developing countries from workers in developed countries so in a sense you could think of it this way poor countries send people to the west or to developed countries uh and then those people send money back they send capital back uh, to these home countries, and that helps them develop a little bit. Secondly, um, one of the ways that people are able to move to the United States or other developed countries from the third world is if they get more skills, if they improve their human capital. And what we find uh, when taking a look at this is that um, countries where people do this, generally there's a lot of leakage. Like a lot of people in go to school, there's more of an incentive to go to school and get education if there's a potential for being able to leave. Uh, but what happens is not all of them leave. So as a result of that, um, you actually see an improvement in human capital in these home countries uh, because not everyone's able to leave. Uh, third one is sort of related to institutions. So immigrants who go to these countries, they return home, they go back and forth. For instance, um, they bring a lot of the ideas that they learn and develop countries back with them. They improve the institutions. And, and what we see is... Um, Countries tend to have, uh, you know, more economic and political freedom over time if they send more immigrants to uh, politically free and economically free countries. So there's sort of this like uh, reverse sort of influence on people in home countries when they realize, hey, it doesn't have to be this way. Things can be a little bit better. We can have a little bit more responsibility for elected officials, for instance. And that tends to, over time, sort of slowly change institutions in these home countries um, because people realize, like, hey, things are a little bit better in the United States. Um, I got used to not having the police steal my property at any given moment. That's the way it should be here. Um, and as a result of that, you see some, you know, slow changes um, in a lot of these poor countries, a lot of empirical evidence of this. Um, and then I think lastly, um, it's sort of like a values issue. It's not like I'm not interested in, you know, a geographical area being rich or developing. I'm interested in people developing and being rich. And if that means like, if like basically, for example, like every single Haitian and Cuban who is rich in the world has done so by leaving Haiti and Cuba. And I think that's a good thing. I think that those people's lives are improved. We should care more about them than we should care about you know, the average income in any particular geographic area. So if this means that some countries like empty out um, as a result of them seeing their incomes increase by multiples, then that's a good thing. And I think that's fine. And I'm not too worried about that. And the last objection I'd like you to address is, is one that, and I guess this is ultimately uh, when people are speaking against illegal immigration. Uh, or the disorder at the border, like we were talking about before, that they may see. It's the objection that goes something like, uh, immigration is fine as long as it's done legally. Of course, people put aside what legally means at that point, which we'll get into in a sec. So they say, look, j just get in line. If you want to come into the United States, j just get in line. It's 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 easy to fill an application. Someone will throw in something like, do what my great uncle did or, or whatever. So that's that's basically what a lot of people are are saying, uh, are sending a message to, to current people that want to, want to come to the United States. They're basically saying, look, just get in line, fill in the paperwork it's easy. Yeah, what those people miss is that there essentially is no line. Uh, for the vast majority of people who want to come to the United States right now, uh, there is no legal way for them to do so. If you want to come on a green card, which is the way, the path to permanent legal residency, um, there's basically four ways. Uh, the largest way, or the biggest way is to be closely related to an American. The second is to be sponsored by a company, but you basically have to be very high skilled to do that. The second is through being a refugee and asylum seeker. We allow very few of those in. And then the fourth is through a, essentially a lottery program for 50,000 people. Um, there are a handful of guest worker visas for very low-skilled workers to come in temporarily, go back and forth. Um, but there is no visa allowed, but there is no green card for a low-skilled worker who doesn't have family here. He just wants to you know, live and work and, and uh, 
become an American like our ancestors did uh, who came to the United States. So it basically doesn't exist. There is no line. There is no legal process for the vast majority of people who want to apply. As I said earlier, the way the immigration system is set up, and this might be the reason why um, you know people keep saying this and having this objection, um, the way that it's set up is if you don't fit into a handful of very small particular legal categories, there is no way. All immigration is illegal except that which the government says is legal, which is the exact opposite of all of our other legal uh, areas. You know, it's it's not like the law says that, um, you know, vodka is legal, gin is legal, uh, whiskey is legal. The law says is, you know, all alcohol is legal except for a handful that we, the government decides is not legal, like maybe absinthe or some other weird types of alcohol that, that are, are regulated. So it's the exact opposite. So as a result of this, we have a very uh, closed immigration system. And one of the saddest parts of my job is having to tell Americans that no, Ellis Island closed down over a century ago, and there's basically no way for these people to come in legally. Right. So if someone wants to be serious about their look, I'm I'm okay with immigration. It just needs to be orderly. The people need to take a number and get in line. Then basically people should turn around to those folks and say, okay, that's great. If you believe that seriously, you should probably participate in passing uh, laws that help us actually get a line going then. Yeah, I think so. And and this is something like I used to do a lot of talks in Arizona Um which uh, has passed a lot of anti-immigration laws in recent years. And I, I talked about the benefits of illegal immigration and why we need to legalize these folks. And this nice old lady came up to me afterwards once and she said, listen, I understand what you mean about the economics, but why don't the illegal immigrants just um, go down to the post office, register and become legal? And I could understand it. That's how you thought the system worked. You'd be very opposed to illegal immigration. You'd be really worried. You're like, what do these people have to hide? So I had to tell her, like, that's not the law. That has never been the law. They have never been able to do that. And that was sort of like the first point that I got that I made that I got through to her. And I'm convinced that if there's one thing that we can teach uh, Americans, at least, uh, on this issue that will change more people's minds, is to show them one of the highly complicated legal maps that people have to use in order to uh, immigrate to the United States, just to show them how complicated it is, to show them that it's basically impossible for the vast majority of people. I think that'll do more to change minds than any quoting of numbers or economics or culture or cultural issues or anything else we've talked about on here. I, th- I think if you know someone had to navigate that type of legal maze to start a business, let's say, they- they'd be pretty upset. So just to simply get here is not a matter to get to a place like the United States is not a matter of mailing something at the post office. I think you're right. That's a great first step in helping people understand just how difficult it is. Yeah, absolutely. I think if we uh, make people realize at first what reality is in terms of the legal system, uh, then it suddenly becomes a lot easier for them to understand why there is such a large immigration black market. Well, I mean, we've talked about a lot, so let's try and bring it full circle, put a finer point on the discussion. So I always like to try and end the episodes like this, Alex. What do you hope are the main takeaways here for someone listening to you today on why immigration is important to a free society, if we can try and summarize everything we've talked about? The ability to move, to work where you want to, so long as you find a willing employer, to contract with and interact with other people and other places is an inalienable human right. It is an essential part of a free market economy and a free people. Uh, the term laissez-faire, which is used now to refer to a free market economy, um, used to be teamed up with the phrase laissez-passer, which you know also means like you know go where you please. Um, an essential component of a free market economy and a free uh, free people. We used to have free immigration in our societies. Uh, they were considered, it was at one time considered by a lot of people to be an inalienable human right to be able to do so. Um, and it is something that is uh, basically hurts more people today in the world as a, as a policy issue than probably any other single policy. So I think if we believe in individual liberty and freedom, both for the people in our countries today and for people in other countries, if we believe in a free market economy is the best way um, uh, to order the material world. And if we believe that people generally know what to do to help themselves and to improve the quality of their lives, uh, then we need to have a much more open and less regulated immigration system that allows people to move to where they want to and where their services are demanded. Great. I think that's a great place to put our conclusion. 
Alex Narasta, thank you so much for talking to me today on The Curious Task. Thanks a lot for having me. This episode of The Curious Task was produced by Alex Aragona and Sabine L. Chidiak. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you heard on today's episode was created by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona. Thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task.